thread. A singular thought expanded upon. Thread is the podcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. For more information, log on to Quinley.com. Thread. Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome back to Thread, episode 57. Well, this last week, my uh, daughter from Laos, Kristen, who's been over there teaching English, surprised her sisters and brothers with a visit home. So our house is buzzing again, and Sherry is very excited because all her little birds are coming back to the nest again. I don't know if it works like that in your house as we're starting to launch our kids now, but they um, they go out and then they come back for a little while, and that's nice. Hope we can find a way to keep that happening in the future once more of them get married and get their kids and be able to keep some kind of a cycle going where everybody comes home for at least a week or two a year. Well, it's time to word up again. So if you don't have your Bible, please go get one. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. We're coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in verses 33 through 47. This is Thread. It's a verse-by-verse Bible study for leaders. So whether you're leading in your family or you're leading among your friends or that's your job to be the leader, uh, God's Word has instruction for you, and you'll be a better leader for it. So come right back after you get your Bible. with Red. So we're back in the Word. And we are in, again, right in the middle of the Passion narrative. This time, we're dealing with the death of Jesus on the cross. He's already been crucified. He is uh, pinned to the cross. And uh, mocking has gone on. He's already been beaten. It's sort of, it's finished, you know. The, the punishment is laid on him now. The only thing left is that his life must leave his body. He's endured tremendous uh, physical abuse, mental abuse, but there he is nailed to the cross. You know, I had a, I had a, um, I'm going to call it a dream, but it was such a vivid dream that it sticks with me even till today. And I was, uh, I was studying the crucifixion when I was just out of seminary, and I was studying all that it meant and trying to really, really understand it, make sure I didn't miss any of it. And I had a dream one night, and the dream was uh, I walked into our house. We were in Pennsylvania in those days, and Sherry was at the sink. She was making dinner, but kind of in an absent-minded way. And she said to me without turning, she said, "They, they crucified two men today. And uh, I understood in my dream that I was in a time of persecution. And I said, well, where, where are they? And she said, they're in our front yard. And I went outside the house, and there were two men crucified. And my brothers in the Lord, I didn't know them. But I remember walking up to them, and I was trying to uh, encourage them. And their heads were leaned back, almost resting against the cross. And as I spoke to them, they, you know, they, they listened to me and, and I encouraged them, you know, the best I could. And they smiled and then I was finished and they were finished talking to me too because it was their crucifixion, not mine. And they had already come to a place of rest, 
about it. They were crucified men. They weren't trying to run from crucifixion. They weren't trying to avoid death. They weren't trying to escape pain. It had already happened. They were resigned to it, and now it was just them and their Lord on the cross. They were in his presence. They were having a very near fellowship with him through the Holy Spirit. And they, you know, they weren't stressed out. They weren't up there panicking. They were very calm. And uh, here we find Christ, and he is on the cross, but not at rest. You know, that, that vision said to me, if you'll just accept your crucifixion, if you'll just let it, let it be, let God strip you of all this, you can find that place of absolute rest in the Lord. We can find rest because he found torment. As Jesus was on the cross that day, uh, his experience was not one of comfort. His experience was one of exchanging places with us and being abandoned by the Father that had always been so near to him. But at that moment on the cross, Jesus wasn't Jesus. He was you, and he was me, and he was everyone who has ever sinned against God. And as he was saving us, he could only do that by exchanging places with us. So now Christ on the cross, uh, as the whole planet, because creation has been affected by the fall, and the scripture said, over the whole land of Israel, I said planet, but the planet has been affected, but Israel was showing the pain at that moment. And the world became dark where they were. There was darkness on the whole land. It lasted three hours as he hangs on the cross in, uh, we call this a time of dereliction. He is alone. And he cries out in verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lamak sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a quote from Psalms 22. His mind was so full of God's word that he instinctively falls back into a psalm when he's trying to express what his heart is crying over. And this psalm is a, it's one of those beautiful prophetic um, proofs because, you know, this was written over a thousand years before Christ's death, and yet it describes his death, it describes the circumstances of his death, uh, just as Isaiah did in Isaiah 53. But if you uh, jump over real quick to Psalms 22, verse 1, we'll go back to this, this scripture that Jesus is in now. He's crying out, and the exact words that he said are, are that's verse 1 of Psalms 22. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? But if you look at this psalm, it goes on down. It describes being surrounded by the kind of people that are just attacking him even as he's dying. It says, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands. They pierced my feet. I can count on my bones, and they look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's exactly what Scripture says happened that day. So, um, you know, and there are other verses here, verse uh, 27 and 28. This talks about God's goal for the substitutionary atonement that was going on right at that moment as 
as Messiah is left alone on the cross, it says, all the ends of the earth, verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. And that's God's dream. It's that the nations will come to him through this horrible, uh, wonderful act of love as God comes in the form of his son, God the Son is on the cross and he pays the price for all of us, standing in our place, bearing the wrath of God, taking on the displeasure of God so that we may exchange places with him and in him we can find the joy of the Lord and the um, approval of God and the forgiveness of God and our adoption into his family. But it didn't come free. You know, we don't uh, we don't earn it in that sense. But he earned it for us. It cost. And as he as he uh, offers that atonement to us, he does it. It's a clear offer. It's not just, oh, please, please, please let me be your savior. It's confess your sin, repent, change your life. You know, God has to give us the power to do that. But the doing of it is very clearly uh, a responsibility of those who come to him. You cannot continue to live any old way and say, well, anyway, I accept my salvation. It's not offered that way. Turn, turn from the ways of the world, turn to him. And this salvation purchased at such an awful price becomes ours. So we're, you know, we find ourselves uh, in the Isaiah 53 setting today. And if you haven't read that recently, you know, while you're pondering what God did through Christ on the cross, I just invite you to go to Isaiah 53. It's an amazing portrait painted of how God brought salvation to man. Well, on the cross that day, you have quite a few characters in the drama. First, we have Christ. He's the crucified man. There's nowhere else for him to go. Nothing else will be done. We'll just watch every drop of his blood come from his body into the earth, bringing healing to the earth until in just a moment he dies of a broken heart. Um, The mockers are surrounding him, continuing to mock. And somehow people like that never grasp that they personally are being watched by God, that everything they're doing, they will one day, you know, be standing naked in his burning light for judgment and everything that they have said or ever done to anyone will be there that day. They will face these things. But mockers in their pride, especially when they have each other to encourage that arrogance, you know, they just keep pouring it on. These people are there as Christ calls out. Someone mocks. I mean, this is an obvious, this is scripture that I think a lot of Jews uh, were aware of, uh, yet somehow they miss it or they mock it too and say, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Uh, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. In Mark's gospel, you don't really get a context for that. The context was that Christ had cried out, uh, I am thirsty. And someone grabbed a jug of soured wine and poured it on a 
uh, sponge and held it to his lips. So I don't know if they saw that as an act of mercy or if they were just trying to torment him, uh, even in this moment. In verse 37 and 38, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Other Gospels say he cried, it is finished, or in, in better English translation, paid in full. And with one great breath, his life went out of him. And that, that breath, as the, the death of the Son of God took place on human soil, as he breathed out that last breath, it released the power of God. It released the forgiveness of God. It released the power to bridge the separation that our sin had caused us. And the scripture says in verse 38 that at that moment, as that breath went out of Jesus, his power of God is released and it rips the veil in the temple from the top of it to the bottom of it. Uh, Matthew's account says there was at that at that moment uh, an earthquake that tombs broke open and there were there were some who were resurrected at that moment and came out and began to walk around in the city. Um, this this veil it's kind of again a bad uh, an inadequate translation of this object. Uh, it's not a veil like a woman's veil as in this uh, you know real. Uh, chiffon kind of fabric you can see right through it. That's not it at all. The veil in the temple was a huge, thick um, separation. It was a curtain, but not just a curtain. I mean, it was like a wall almost. It it was inches thick. Uh, the, they say from tradition that it took uh, teams of oxen to raise this thing up. It was so thick on pulleys so that it could hang. And now this thing, it didn't drop down as though, you know, oh no, the fastener broke. It was ripped as if by unseen hands and not ripped from the bottom as man would do. Uh, ripped from the top, you know, stories high where no one can be there. And it was the hand of God, divide that, that dividing place that said, do not even attempt to come to the Holy of Holies. You, know, you will die. One representative can come. That's a high priest. He had to offer a sacrifice first for his own sinfulness before he dared step in there. They tell us that uh, you know a, a, um, a cord was wrapped around his ankle just out of the fear that if he had secret sin, that when he got near the mercy seat, the holiness of God would wipe him out and they would just have to drag him out of there by that rope because they did not dare go in. It was the place where God's presence was manifest. It was the seat of mercy, but it was it was not a place that a person could just approach because of our sin. The sin had to be removed because it's as though uh, the white heat of God, as it got near the sulfur of our own sin, the way if you get a match close to a flame, it just flames out. So there was no way for fellowship between God and man and now the way has been made and God himself reaches and tears open the veil that he established to keep us out of that space now to say there is a new way the first time ever this way has been made and now the path is clear 
between man and God, and we can approach him in faith. Please feel your assurance. Please feel the Father's acceptance of you. If you have uh, embraced the kingdom of God and entered it, if you have accepted Jesus as your master, if you have willingly put yourself underneath the lordship of Christ and have turned from your uh, earthly ways and wicked ways and you have turned toward God and toward his grace, understand that you are now not just a servant of God, you are a son or daughter of God. You and I have been grafted into his family and he has brought us near by the death of Jesus on the cross. Well, that day, another character, the centurion in verse 39, is standing there observing the whole death. He stood, the scripture said, across from Christ. He just sat down as it was at the foot of the cross or stood there at the foot of the cross watching this death take place. Uh, He appears to be the guy on execution duty, and he's done this before. He's in charge of the whole procedure, and if if the prisoner doesn't die, they all die. And so he is there to ensure that the orders of the governor are carried out exactly. And as he watches, though, the manner of Jesus on the cross, the behavior of the crowd toward him, the words that Christ says, how that the whole sky clouds over three hours of darkness that came upon the earth, this breath causing an earthquake, He says, this is the Son of God. Now, Christ as the Son of God, it's a key theme in Mark. He comes to it over and over again. He's not just a noble teacher. He's not just a wise man. He is God the Son. Demons in Mark's gospel confess that he is God the Son. They recognize him. They honor him with their words. Now, nature obeys the son of God and declares him to be son of God. Now it's just for mankind to declare that he is son of God. And here's a centurion cut off from the scriptures, cut off from the people of God, not invited into worship, uh, not being taught by man uh, or by the word of God. And yet there he is in his encounter with Jesus, as so many have encountered him, And as the centurion looks on, he says, this was the son of God. Um, Another character there, uh, this is a plural character, though, the women of ministry. This gospel is careful to highlight the role that women played in the early ministry of Jesus, and it leads to the later ministry. And there were these women, and they were some of them older women, and some of them maybe not as old, but they traveled with Jesus and with his disciples. And these women in verse 40 that have been ministering to him all the way from Galilee have followed him down to the south and then climbed up the long grade until they were in Jerusalem with him. And they were also a little distance away watching and crying at what was going on with Christ that day. Well, the Son of God is now dead. Jesus is now uh, a corpse on the cross. His spirit has left this body. And the body that they have interacted with is now lifeless. And if you've ever seen a body shortly after death, there's the 
the humiliation of death, you know, how it, you're just different immediately. Your body is, it just looks different as soon as the spirit leaves and it's in grotesque poses and there's, there's, it's just not worthy of the person that used to inhabit it. And especially this body that's been beaten so badly. There is a brother named Joseph of Arimathea. And I like how Mark um, identifies him. He says he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. I like that. I've been pondering that today. Matthew says he was a disciple of Christ. Um, the other gospels say uh, he was sort of a secret disciple out of fear of the Jews, I guess like Nicodemus. Nicodemus joins him in his mission at this point. Joseph and Nicodemus are members of the council. They are highly regarded uh, teachers and leaders in Israel. And Joseph was not consenting to his death. Uh, We're told that in another scripture. Uh, He takes, as the scripture said, you know, um, as you're writing a drama and Mark is written as though it's a script to a play. It says he does this, he goes there. And he's really about action. And that's important because when you're writing a drama and you're writing a screenplay for a movie, um, you only know the characters by their actions. You don't know them by their words. We can't trust people's words. We watch to see what they do. And this man, uh, he, he comes, first of all. He comes and he takes courage, the scripture said. He has a, an initiation Uh, He's taking initiative inside, and he decides to do something about this. So he comes to the governor's house, and he takes a breath, and he takes courage. Um, This is his character. It's it's demonstrating itself. He's about to go in to see Pilate. He's going to, as a Jew, defile himself by even going into Pilate's quarters. Uh, He's also risking Pilate's displeasure. He's risking the displeasure and scorn of the council by associating himself with this man that they have convicted. Uh, it was Luke in Luke twenty three fifty one that said he had not consented to their plan. But he goes in to see Pilate, and he requests the corpse of Jesus. And Pilate, now there's another character in the drama, Pilate, calloused, in power, ignoring uh, his own wife's dream to him to have nothing to do with a righteous this righteous man's death. Pilate is, uh, he's just simply amazed that the death occurred so quickly. This is supposed to linger for days. And Christ's death on the cross has been rel- relatively uh, quick. And so he summons the centurion in and he says, is he really dead? And has he been dead for some time? The, another of the gospels say that the Jews were concerned that these bodies were going to be left on the tree on the Sabbath day. This was a Passover feast that was coming. And it was a high Sabbath, and it defiles the land to have a, a dead person on a, on a cross. So they, were, they came to Pilate also to say, would you break the legs of everybody on the cross to get this over with so that we can get them buried before sundown? And when they came to Christ, he was already dead, and instead of breaking his legs, They pierced his side, but found that his heart had ruptured and the blood had coagulated and the water had separated from it. And uh, 
so that we know he died from a, a rupture of his heart inside. But they didn't break his legs because the scripture said that they couldn't break his legs, that although they would abuse him terribly, not one of his bones would be broken. So Pilate uh, is just, uh, that's his only part in the drama at this point, is just to say, okay, you can you can have the body. Verse 45, he grants the body to Joseph. Um, we're told in John's gospel that Nicodemus helped him at this point. They went out, they bought fine linen, they took Christ down. Uh, John's gospel says that they prepared a hundred pounds of spices and they took him down quickly and they laid him in the closest tomb that they could get to. That was one that was nearby. It had been cut out of a rock and they uh, did a quick job of preparing his body and then dumping a hundred pounds of spices on him and taking strips of linen and wrapping them around him and binding all that spice to his body, knowing that they would come back properly on Sunday and they would they would deal with this the way that they wanted to. We're told again, as they rolled the stone back, verse 47, that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. This is important for the next chapter. The death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus. He was clearly dead. He did not swoon. He did not faint. He died. His death was verified. It was ensured because his soldiers did not want to die in his place. So we know that Christ died, and Mark is very careful to always keep his eye on discipleship. The point that Mark wants to make to us today is that we need to see the mission of Jesus very clearly. He saved others. Himself he could not save. He came to establish the kingdom of God on earth and to bring into it those who were not. And so we need to see the mission of Christ clearly, and we need to enter it ourselves. And we need, as Jesus told us, to take up our own crosses, to be willing to suffer the rejection of this world, to go ahead and accept not being on the in with this world, but to be an outsider to this world. He was rejected even by the religious. Take up your cross, take up your own rejection, and verse and thirdly, follow him. Follow him into his mission. Follow him into the joys of this mission and follow him into the hardships that come with this mission. Mark's central theme, Jesus is the son of God and everyone who follows him and follows him wholly will have to endure some opposition. This is a gospel about getting your mind set properly so that you can successfully deal with opposition to the kingdom of God and be a part as God rolls the kingdom out uh, all over the world and brings men and women from every nation into it. Well, that's all for this time. If you'd like to write me directly, I'd love to hear from you, chuck at quinley.com. And we'll come back in our next thread to study chapter 16, the resurrection of Jesus. And with that, we will wrap up our study of the Gospel of Mark. Thanks again. God bless. Mm-hmm.